Hello and shalom. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I'm your host, Joe Amon. We got a great show ahead, so buckle up and hang on. Here we go. Shalom, shalom, everybody. Hey, welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I am your host, Joe Amon, coming to you all the way from southwest Louisiana and out of Ashes Ministries. I hope you are doing marvelously well, and I hope that your family is well and everything is just peachy. I am so glad that you guys are with us this week, and I'm glad to be able to be back with you. And uh, before we start in this week's episode, again, uh, I want to, two things, uh, three things. I want to remind everyone uh, who is listening, and by the way, if it's your first time listening, welcome to the show. Uh, if you're a regular listener, welcome back. Um, first thing, uh, if you're not aware, Out of Ashes Ministries, where I'm privileged to be the pastor, uh, streams our Shabbat services every single Shabbat, 10 a.m. Central, at our website, outofashesministries.org, if you just want to watch. Also on Facebook, if you would like to jump in the comment section, tell us where you're from, wish us Shabbat Shalom, interact with everybody. That's awesome. Or on YouTube, I know some of you folks don't like the chat and you just like to put it up on your big screen and watch and have people invite people over, which is super awesome. You can do that as well. We also have a free mobile app you can download to your iPod, uh, iPhone. Who uses iPod? Is, is iPod even a thing anymore? I don't think so, right? Anyway, download to your Apple device, tablet, or Android. And uh, that app is free. It's called the Share Faith app, or you can search for Out of Ashes. We'll find it either way. Uh, and so I would love for you to join us as our cyber mishpaka, our cyber family expands. Uh, secondly, I want to thank everyone for your support of the podcast and the ministry. Thank you guys for your prayers, your comments, your feedback. Thank those of you who donate, um, who give offerings. Thank you so, so very much. Um, it just means the world, and it helps us to continue doing what we're doing. If you like what we're doing... Send us the tenor or or something. <laughs> go to our website and go to the give page and give something. It'd be good. It'd be good for you and good for us. Those of you that do, thank you so, so, so very much. Thirdly, I want to remind you that just coming up, just around the bend, our good friend and Israeli tour guide extraordinaire and the reacher outer to uh, to the lost tribes and to those of us who are aligning with Israel, Hanok Young will be in all the way from Modain, Israel, uh, the 14th, 15th, and 16th. And we're excited to have Hanok in, and he's going to tell us about what's going on in Israel and what's happening in, in Judaism and allow us to ask questions and pick his brain and all kind of good stuff. And we also are using this weekend as an opportunity to invite all of our online listeners and followers uh, to come in. I know that it's getting close, but if you're close enough, drive in for the weekend. Uh, if you can catch a last-minute flight, if there, whatever, there are even flights available or whatever, Come in. If you have a, we have some folks coming in in RVs, just come. Make plans to be here. You will not regret it. We want to hug you, and we want to, to get to know you and, and to, to talk to you personally, face-to-face. So uh, make an effort to come. You, you always can say, well, I would, but 
don't do that. Just come. Uh, the Friday night, we're going to have a beautiful Arev Shabbat meal together in fellowship. Uh, Shabbat at 10 a.m., our normal streaming uh, in service. Uh, and then uh, uh, Oneg together. And then two uh, sessions, Shabbat afternoon with Hanok, and then two sessions Sunday morning and breaking before lunch. So if you have any questions about accommodations or scheduling or anything like that, please uh, get in touch with us, Facebook, uh, website, email, phone number, whatever it is. Get in touch with us. I would love to see your beautiful faces and get to meet some of you in person for the first time. So please, by all means, uh, try to make that. All right. With that all out of the way, let's say a blessing and we'll get into our episode. Father in heaven, we bless you, we bless you, we bless you. We thank you for sustaining us and bringing us to this precious time, Father. Let our time together be full of honor and blessing as we do our best to bear your image and spread your light and spread your kingdom in our world. Alrighty, so continuing on from last week's episode, if you can hear, I, I have a little bit of a cold. Um, I'm recording these both at the same time, so you just have to forgive my uh, my my voice. Um, thank you for being gracious. So last week, so the, we've been talking about the challenge of Emmanuel, and we are just past the Christmas holidays. I know most of you don't celebrate, or maybe none of you celebrate Christmas. Neither do we as a family. But the point I made last week was, um, you know, I want to be able to engage with my friends and family during Christmas because for them it is a super meaningful time, as it once was for most of us, or maybe all of us, um, it is for them. And while I know that he was, Yeshua wasn't born on December 25th, uh, et cetera, et cetera, we personally celebrate during Sukkot, but that's just us. I know some other people celebrate during Pesach, whatever it is. Um, I want to be able to engage with my friends and family. And something I thought of last week was, you know, some of our, most of us, maybe many of us, um, I know me personally, my family knows I don't celebrate Christmas. But they love me enough, they want to be around me enough, they respect me enough, and they honor my presence and my family enough to invite us to get-togethers anyway around Christmas. And I, I think that it erodes that loyalty and that trust whenever we just go, no, I'm, you know, whatever. Um, I, and I know, I'm not saying you have to attend, I'm just saying this is me personally. Um, I want to honor them back and say, you know what, it is important enough for us to be together um, I know that's crossing some lines maybe for some folks that may be compromising for some folks. Call it whatever you want. Um, I've done it the other way, and it's made a lot of trouble, and that's not like, oh, they're persecuting me because I'm standing for holding. No, it's because I was being a jerk. Um, and so, you know, I want to be able to engage at least around this season when people want to talk about, you know, the, the advent of Yeshua, the birth of Yeshua. I want to be able to engage and not be all toxic and, you know, and hurtful and, Give them all Hislop's, uh, Alexander Hislop's reasons why we, sh you know, Christmas is pagan. And I don't want to do that. I want to, I want to be able to engage and it be uplifting and healthy. People know where you stand. You don't have to, you don't have to be toxic about it. All right. So this is what we've been talking about. Um, and, and the idea around Christmas time is Emmanuel. 
And, and, and Emmanuel is not a Christmas thing. Emmanuel is a Bible thing that we all should be concerned with, that we all should be uh, really meditating on, and we all should think about a lot more than just one time a year, whether that's Sukkot or Pesach or Christmas or whatever. It should be something that we, it should be an ethic that we live our lives by. And I asked last week uh, for everyone to think about just what does it mean whenever you hear the word Emmanuel? What does that mean to you? And I, I know for some people it's hope. Uh, it means that Hashem is walking with you through trials and tests and, and all of this life, and there's that, that security and that identity. I mean, there's, there's a lot of beautiful, beautiful things we think about. And so, But I want to talk about the other side of it, the challenges of God being with us, because for some people, God is, is with us, and it's like He's our safety net. He came to save my sins so I can go to heaven. And that is part of God being with us, but that is just the very, in my opinion, tip of the iceberg. And just the very beginning, that's the elementary matters. Yes, your sins are forgiven. Yes, you'll live, you know, forever in the, in the kingdom. Yes, great, whatever. Okay, now let's, uh, we got to live the rest of this life here on earth. And God called us to do some very special things and very big things while we're here. And most of us just don't get that. And so we want to talk about the challenges of God being with us. And so we read a bunch in the uh, Tanakh uh, from, the, from the Torah. And now we're in Isaiah chapter 7. Last week we were talking about prophets and specifically Isaiah talking to King Ahaz and um, explaining kind of what the role of a true biblical prophet is because don't listen. You know, I mean, you can get jaded and you can get really twisted around by a modern day quote unquote prophet. So um, sometimes. And so the, we, we talked about the, the prophets being kind of the, the ones that stand in the gap and call people back to repentance. Usually, and most often, uh, that's leadership. That's king's priest leadership. Hey, you guys are messing up, and you're either leading the people astray or allowing the people to go astray. It's time for you to get your butts in gear and, and repent and come back, right, to fidelity to the covenant and to the king, Hashem. So um, one of the things I wanted to mention again um, in addition to that is that the prophets are not primarily fortune tellers or future tellers. Um, I know that's, we think prophecy, we think, oh, well, they're going to tell me something about my future. Prophets in scripture are not primarily future, they're not predictors. Um, they are speaking to their time. This is highly important to understand. They are speaking to their time. They are, we talk, we talk about them being crisis managers. I think I got that from Pete Inns. Um, they're primarily crisis managers. So we read in Isaiah 7, the Assyrian war machine is stoking up, and it's, they're coming and getting ready to conquer everybody. Um, and they, uh, they're coming to Israel, and Israel is fractured, divided, civil war, unrest. And the king of the southern kingdom, Ahaz, is freaking out because the king of the north, their brothers, uh, cousins, and are allying with these foreign nations to come and overthrow him. And so he's freaking out, and God sends Isaiah and says, Take heed, be quiet, don't fear, don't let your heart be faint. It's going to be okay. It's a message of hope to his time, to Ahaz, in his time of crisis. Now, can the prophets predict the future? Yeah, so can I. Not to take away from the prophetic gift, but the prophet can predict the future. But the template is laid out in Deuteronomy 28. If you don't know what that is, go ahead and read Deuteronomy 28. I'll sum it up for you. God says, if you do everything I tell you, then all this good is going to happen. If you don't, all this bad is going to happen. Bingo, bango. There's the prophetic uh, template, right? And now prophets have a specific message for a specific situation. But most of the time, uh, and many times, I think that message doesn't necessarily come from 
the throne room of heaven, as we talked about last week, prophets are, they have schools where they're taught uh, and where they learn together. They study history, they study government, they study politics. They, they're very, very, very intelligent men and women. And um, they are not primarily predictors. They are those that bring correction first and hope to a current situation, a current crisis, right? So that's really important to establish. I know we may have other ideas of what prophets are, but that's what the biblical, um, that's what the prophet is in the, in the Hebrew scriptures is all about. They're coming to bring a message to their current time, their current place and time. Uh, and that's super, super important, okay? As we continue to read through Isaiah chapter 7. Um, so we're going to pick up in... Uh, let's see, verse 5. It says, Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and cut off Jerusalem and conquer it for ourselves and make the son of Tabil king in it. Therefore, thus says Hashem Elohim. So we're going to get into verse 7. But So what you have again as a recap is you have Ahaz, the king of uh, Judah, in the south, is having a meltdown, right? Because uh, he's this conspiracy is happening against him, and uh, and that's why Isaiah sent to him in the first place. Uh, but it, the 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 conspirators basically they want to overthrow Ahaz and put in this kind of puppet king that will basically do what they want, which is join them with Assyria, give up God, all, you know, whatever, uh, and and rebel against the covenant. And so they want to put in this Tabil character as a, a puppet king so that they can manipulate and they can have control over because Ahaz is standing against it. So verse 7, uh, also I want to just mention, we talked last week about the tertiary structure of sacred space. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen. I'll give you a recap. Basically, the temple tabernacle structure is three parts. Tertiary, you have the outer court, the inner court, the holy of holies, three parts, right? The land of Israel is a sacred space. I don't know if you realize that, but the Haaretz, the land, the reason why the, one of the reasons why the Jews are so passionate about it is because it is, uh, it's in a sense, a, a temple design uh, in, in the land. And when God gave them this land, we read about Jacob, uh, Yaakov, and how God promised him that land as he promised to Abraham and Yitzhak. Um, you have the land of Israel, which we could say is kind of like the outer court. You have Jerusalem, which is kind of like the inner court, and you have the Temple Mount, which is like the Holy of Holies, right? The Kodesh and Kodeshim. So you have this tertiary structure to Israel itself. It's a sacred space. And why do I say that? Well, because we looked at places where God said, I'm going to dwell with you in Genesis, in, the, in Gan Eden, in the Garden of Eden. Um, that's a temple picture. That's a, obviously a sacred space kind of temple uh, look. And God walked with them in the garden, right? He was in the, uh, they heard his wind, you know, they heard him in the wind. Um, then Yaakov, we looked at that, and, and Yaakov named the place Bet-El because God was there, the house of God. So you always have this, this Emmanuel, this idea of God with us tied to a sacred space. Uh, and a lot of other passages uh, that we, we alluded to, and I'm sure you could find a hundred more. And so uh, Israel uh, was, you know, we looked at Exodus where God said, have them build me a sanctuary that I may dwell with them. And that sanctuary would be taken with them, and, and then when they got into the land, it would be set up, and eventually we'd have a temple, etc. But this idea that God would gather all of his people and lead them all to this promised land where he would dwell with them in that land, right? doesn't mean that God's not everywhere. It just it means that that is his dwelling place, that, his, that is his vishakanti, that I may dwell, right? So verse 7 says, 
it shall not stand. Verse thus says Hashem Elohim, it shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. Now remember, I told you last week that the important part of this prophecy is actually in verse um, uh, in verse four to take heed, be quiet, do not fear, etc. Right. So he continues, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. Verse 8, for the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Razin. And then there's a parenthesis in, the, in, in this version. It says, within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered, no longer people, which, you know, of course, if you know your history, Assyria comes and takes the northern kingdom out. The northern kingdom, the northern tribes are known as Ephraim, uh, Israel, Joseph, and Samaria in Scripture. So they are taken out and they're scattered, right? They, were, they are no more, no longer people. Uh, verse 9, the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you do not stand firm in faith, you shall not stand at all. So again, this is the message of hope to Ahaz in his time. Verse 10, again, Hashem spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign of Hashem your God, and let it be deep as Sheol or high as a heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put Hashem to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary mortals, that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child, and shall bear a son, and shall call him Emmanuel. Now, the reason why I'm reading this is because this is where the, 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 the idea of Emmanuel around Christmas time becomes so important. It's quoted in Matthew 1, which we read last week, and Matthew is the only person that quotes, the only gospel that quotes this. He's the only one that gives the account of, of the angel quoting this from, uh, or, or saying this, and him, him coming and saying this is the, uh, to fulfill the prophecy that was spoken by the prophet, right, which is Isaiah, which is here in Isaiah chapter 7. Now, Matthew is a Jewish author writing to Jews, right? So his, his audience is intimately familiar with this story and with this context, right? A king is in crisis, their king is in crisis, and so Isaiah comes. And, and this is what the, the, this is the uh, NRSV version. Um, many versions will say in verse 14, look, the young woman or the virgin, will conceive, right? Will conceive, which, again, prophets are not predictors. They're not future tellers primarily. Um, and so this version, NRSV, and some of the Hebraic versions, um, the complete uh, Jewish, but not the complete Jewish Bible, um, the Jerusalem Bible, maybe. I'm trying to think of the other ones that do. Anyway, there's several versions that say it like this. First of all, um, a young maiden, not a virgin, a young maiden, a young married woman, right, is, is with child. So why is this so important? Why am I making a big deal about this? I'm not talking about Matthew 1. Matthew 1, um, Matthew uses this prophecy to speak of Yeshua, rightfully so. But I want us to understand, I want us to disconnect the Isaiah 7 prophecy given to Ahaz, disconnect it from Matthew 1 for a minute. Just discon- like like you don't even know that like there's not it's not even written in Matthew. Let's let's look let's treat this prophecy the way it was meant to be treated in its own context and its own time for its own purpose. We'll deal with Matthew one in a minute, but let's deal with Isaiah seven right now. Okay, so Isaiah has already given Ahaz the hope. Take heed, be quiet, don't let your heart be faint. Everything's going to be okay. Take a deep breath, close your mouth, stand firm in the faith. If you stand firm, you're going to be okay. If you don't, 
then you lose everything, right? We saw that a couple verses ago. So Isaiah looks around. This is what I picture in my head. Isaiah looks around. He goes, look, see that young maiden over there? She has a child. She's with child, right? And he says, the young woman is with child, and she'll bear a son. And shall call him Emmanuel, God with us, right? And it goes on to talk, uh, in verse 15, he shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse evil and choose good. For before the child knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. So he's saying before this, as this kid grows up, before he even knows how to tell right from wrong, the two kings you're worried about are going to be no more. They're not even going to. And this child, this woman with this child is the sign. It's a reminder. It's a waypoint. It's something for you to look. How many of you have been in a time of crisis and you get some comfort, right? You get some hope, like you read a Bible verse, you sing a worship song, you, somebody calls you with an encouraging word or whatever, and you get some hope, like, oh, everything's going to be okay. Um, is that just like a one and done thing? I don't, for me, it's not a one and done thing. I don't, if I'm in a time of turmoil and crisis, I don't just need one little, you know, I don't need one encouragement. I need it successively. So this child that you see this young maiden, this young woman having this child is a sign. It's a, a remembrance to you. It's a marker. It's a reminder to you that God is with you just like we talked about in the previous verses. So don't be afraid. Don't lose hope. Don't just relax. Don't have a meltdown. Every time you see this young woman, every time you see this child, you're going to remember that God is with you. Okay. See, see how that works. It's a comfort for Ahaz. Like, here's the problem with prophets as future tellers, as predictors, is that it minimizes Hashem's love for the people they're prophesying to. In other words, if Isaiah's telling Ahaz, look, if we read this the way we traditionally do, he's telling Ahaz, look, I know things are bad, right? You're going to lose your kingdom. You're probably going to lose your life. Your family's going to be killed. Your palace is going to be ransacked and, you know, whatever. But listen, in in about another 2,000 years, there's going to be a young lady that's going to, that's going to conceive a child, and, um, and he's going to be God with us, with those people. I get the beauty in that prophecy, and that's fine, but, but how do we know then? So if God is not giving comfort to Ahaz and the people that Isaiah is actually speaking to, then how can we read the promises of God for us and say they're for us? Maybe they're not for us. Maybe they're for generations past us. You see what I mean? It minimizes God's care for those people in the moment. If we just read prophecy as future predictions, listen, I know things are bad, but hey, like in 10 generations, your kids are going to be killing it. Well, that, okay. I mean, like, that's cool. I'm glad about that, but my life is falling apart. It's being destroyed. So like, does God not care? Does he not hear me now? Does he not care about me now? Are my prayers not making it to heaven? And, and does he not have an ear towards my cry and my desperation? You understand what I'm saying? And so, so we can't really have confidence that God is hearing our prayers either, because maybe he's only cared about the next, the future generations. And I think it minimizes that. And I think that's really, that's really, it's not good. So it's a sign that this child, when you see this child, you've got to remember, he's a reminder for you. He says in verse uh, 17, 
uh, that Hashem will bring on you and your people and your ancestral house, such as the days have not seen uh, since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah and the king of Assyria. It goes on. Uh, in chapter 8 of Isaiah, um, we read more about this boy. Um, Isaiah's son, uh, the sign of the, Syrius, the Assyrian invasion. And I would encourage you, we're not going to take time to do it today, but I would encourage you to read chapter 8 as well about this boy and how the boy is a reminder. He's a marker. He's a sign again for Ahaz and for the people that this, that, that God is with them, that God is with them. Emmanuel, I know the whole world is stacked against you, it seems like, but God is with you. Don't lose hope. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. So this is the context of Isaiah's prophecy, and there's much, 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 much more we could say, but we're going to talk about Matthew 1, um, in the next segment, and then I have some points I want you to consider uh, as we think about not just during this season, but as we go throughout the year, especially uh, approaching Pesach, as we think about this concept of Emmanuel. We'll be right back right after the break. Don't go away. Alrighty, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the second segment in this episode of Image Bearers Radio, talking about the challenges of Emmanuel. So we're going to go back and reference Matthew chapter 1 again, um, but before I do that, I want to talk about prophets again. I want to talk about when these prophecies show up. So let's talk about Israel, first century, um, the quote-unquote silent years, the intertestamental period, which... As I was taught in my background, God doesn't speak. God is silent. There's a lot of stuff going on, ladies and gentlemen, in this time period. A lot of stuff that's recorded, a lot of writings that happen. It, this time period is just absolutely full of beautiful, beautiful things that happen uh, and some trouble. Um, but there's a lot of history that is really important to us because it creates the environment that Yeshua is eventually born into. And um, we 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 don't understand maybe him and his mission and his what what he the the world he's moving and shaking in because we don't study these quote unquote silent years which are mostly i mean you know to to our as a good excuse for us they're mostly contained in jewish history um but you have uh you have the assyrians that do take the northern kingdom away and then you have the babylonians that take the southern kingdom away the babylonian the southern kingdom returns from babylon most of them return um the ten northern tribes are lost, right, forever, as Isaiah uh, foretold. And um, you have then uh, Persia, who comes and eats up Babylon, right, takes over the, the land of Israel. And then you have the Greeks uh, that, well, of course, Israel comes back and, and rebuilds the temple, right, Ezra and Nehemiah. And then you have the Greeks that come in. You have Alexander and Antiochus. That's a whole you know, kerfuffle. Uh, we just celebrated Hanukkah, so we we're aware of that. 
and then you have the Hasmonean dynasty, the Maccabees that take over king uh, kingship, and then you have their deterioration, uh, you know, over a hundred years or so, which begins just like the next generation after uh, Yehuda HaMakabi takes over, and so it's just a, I mean, it's just this turmoil, uh, and then you have so you have Greece, and then you have uh, Rome coming in, and so you have deals being made, you have the temple being desecrated by the Sadducees. Um, and you have the Idumean Nabataeans, where Herod comes from, um, who are descendants of Ishmael and um, Esau, Edom, uh, you know, Edomites. So you have, I mean, there's just a, it's a tumultuous time. There's a lot of stuff happening. And this, into this cacophony of events and crisis is when Yeshua is born. Now, what did we say about like Isaiah and the prophets, right? When did the prophets show up? They're crisis managers, right? They show up around times of crisis to give hope and to give correction, um, primarily correction, and also hope to the leadership, to the people um, that are in that crisis, that are being thrust into crisis. And if you've done any study, if you've done any amount of reading, or if you've listened to any of our teachings or anyone else teach about you know, Hanukkah and the, the time between the Testaments, you, are, you should be painfully aware that if there ever was a time of crisis in Israel, um, probably not as much as the exile, but pretty critical. I mean, pretty, you know, it's a devastating, it's a catastrophic time for the people of Israel in the first century. Um, just a little taste test as, you know, things we've talked about before, but um, you have a temple, you have the people back in the land, um, but it's not like it was when you left, Right. If you've ever, we've mentioned this before, like if you've ever had your home broken into or you've ever, you know, your car or whatever, that's a violation of your sacred space. And and you might move back into your home and live there and be fine, but it's just always kind of tainted, you know, at least for a while after that happened. Somebody desecrated your space. They invaded your space. And and so you have that this issue. Then you have the Sadducees who are running the temple and, and the, the, you know, and running Jerusalem, uh, but they're in bed with both the Greeks uh, and the Romans and the Idumeans, um, and that's where Herod comes from, and he's Jewish. Some history says his his father, grandfather, whatever, was Jewish, and some history says he wasn't Jewish, but he married a Hasmonean princess, and that kind of gave him the credentials of being Jewish, whatever. Anyway, he sold basically the kingship, and then he wheels and deals. They wheel and deal the high priesthood uh, that's bought for a price. Um, and, and given to a certain family, the highest bidder for several generations. And, I mean, it's just all this stuff. Um, and then you have the political back and forth, right? I mean, and you have you have unrest in the nation. You have Roman legions in every major city. I mean, it's just it, – it's a time of massive upheaval. And, and if, again, if you do any study into this intertestamental period, you, you begin to understand why it was Yeshua was born at this particular time. Um, like I said, maybe not to rival the time of exile, but pretty darn close. And Yeshua is born into this time, right? So if we understand, so I asked you before to disconnect Isaiah 7 from Matthew 1. So I wanted to take it away from you and then I'll give it back to you. Again, Isaiah is speaking to his time. So if Matthew is going to use Isaiah's prophecy to Ahaz and say this is a fulfillment of that, which it is, if he's going to use that, it it's important for us to understand the context of the original prophecy, and it doesn't take away from Yeshua. It actually should open up and and help us to see even more. It should blossom in revelation and hope and beauty when we see Yeshua in this context. The nation of Israel is in turmoil. It's in crisis, and 
the Messiah, Yeshua, is being born. And as a Jew, as Matthew, as a Jewish person, now he's writing this gospel several decades after Yeshua's resurrection ascension, right? So he's had a lot of time to process what's going on, what happened, the hope that he felt, and then the 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 you know the the dismal outcome at the crucifixion, and then the celebratory resurrection ascension. I mean, there's been it's just been a whirlwind these last few decades in, in the life of Matthew and the disciples and the people around them. So. You have all this stuff, and he's had time to write. He's had time to think about all these these things. And the way Matthew writes, and one of the reasons why I think he quotes this prophecy is because he has the benefit of hindsight, right? He's We read it, and, and of course we, we have the benefit of hindsight as well, but we tend to read it as Matthew is like as Yeshua or as um, Miriam is, is becoming – is conceiving Yeshua you know, with, with Ruach HaKodesh, uh, Matthew's like writing it down like a stenographer. And like he doesn't know what's coming next, so it's like it's all a surprise to him. No, of course not. Matthew knows exactly how the story goes, and he's putting this story together in a way that we can understand it and that that fits the message that he's trying to give. We talked about this a lot in the Gospels uh, series that we did, and so this idea of Matthew having this hindsight and putting all of Yeshua's life and work and teaching and ministry, um, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, all together into one package. And giving you a storyline and telling you, look, this is what this whole thing is about. Um, this idea that God is with them is the most important and fundamental. It's the most important and fundamental uh, ethic. It's the most uh, important fundamental promise in a Jewish life, and it should be in all of ours, that God would be with us, right? So this is why I believe that it's so important to understand Isaiah's prophecy in the light of the way Matthew uses it, that this this virgin, I'm not going to have the virgin young maiden debate. Believe what you want; it doesn't matter to me. But this this virgin will conceive a child, and he will be called Emmanuel. The 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 child in Isaiah was his name Emmanuel. Well, we, I mean, Yeshua obviously is named Yeshua, not Emmanuel. So it's not a name; it's an ethic, it's an ideal, it's a a hope, it's a promise, it's a uh, you know, it's it's a way of of thinking. And a way of understanding life, that life is in absolute turmoil. And so Hashem sent his only begotten son that that whoever believes in him, right, would, would never perish but have eternal life. And that's, that's so important in a time where the kingdom has been changing hands and been full of corruption and upheaval for centuries now. So, so super important. And so it should make the Matthew 1, Matthew 1's allusion to Isaiah just blossoming like, wow. Yeshua is not just his 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 coming is not just to save me from my sin. Whew. It's 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 the it's the sign that God is with us. He's the sign that God is with us. And every time I think about him, every time I remember him, I should remember that God is with us. So I have four things I want you to think about as we as we you know start to close down this two part series and uh, the second episode, the uh, second uh, segment. Excuse me. So first of all, what does Emmanuel mean? Well, I'm going to tell you what it means to me, and, and, and these are the challenges that I see, okay? So three or four things that I want to talk about. Number one, Emmanuel means access to Hashem, access to God. In the garden, we see this all the way through that Adam and Eve have access to Hashem. In Jacob's life, we see that Genesis tells us that you know, it says surprisingly in, in, in my NRSV version uh, that, that, you know, Adonai is standing on top of the ladder, on top of the stairway. And so 
this idea you have access in Exodus and Shemot where the commandment to build the tabernacle, it's access. You have access to Hashem. And, and that is a beautiful thing. But there's some things that access doesn't mean. Access doesn't mean that times are going to be easy. You know, we, we treat God like a, a celestial Santa Claus sometimes, hint, hint, wink, wink, to, you know, recent Christmas. But we treat him like a celestial Santa Claus sometimes where we just, you know, this, the, the theology that, well, if God is, you know, in control of everything, and my life is bad, then that either says something about God or about me or whatever. And then neither of those things are true, most likely. I mean, if you're making really bad decisions, yeah, there's something wrong with you. And if you continue to make those bad decisions and it brings hardship on your life, that's you. Stop it, right? Stop making bad decisions. Start making the right decisions, better decisions. And God is not some, you know, one-to-one, I do something good, God repays me with good. That's not just not how it works in God's economy. The fact is that we're all in exile with with no you know with no king no theoc- no theocratic king that is allegiant to the God of heaven and earth, and that we all are living this life the best we can and a lot of times good things happen, and we should rejoice in those times and a lot of things bad a lot of times bad things happen and the question is what are we going to do when good things and bad things happen? not why do they happen not why you know why me why whatever it's what are you going to do about it? And that's where Emmanuel is important. You have access to, to Hashem himself. You have access, even though things aren't great, even though things aren't great, the hope and the promise is that you have access. But access also feeds into my second point, that access to Hashem requires Kedusha, right? Uh, Kedusha is related to the temple, but it's, it's basically a, a standard of holiness, a standard of righteousness and holiness, a kadusha. So we've talked about this before. I call it radio kadusha. Um, we've talked about this before that <clears throat> in the temple, because that's kind of what we're talking about, is the template we're using. In the temple, um, if you were in just an average Israelite, you're just Joe Blow Israelite, uh, <clears throat> and you, you, know, you have a family, you're a farmer, you're a, you know, a metal worker, you're a carpenter, you're a whatever, uh, an accountant, whatever you do. You're just a Joe Blow Israel. Um, there's some commandments in the Torah for you, but not as many as you might think. Um, you can kind of marry who you want. You, you know, I mean, you can kind of, I mean, it's not as many as we try to think. If you study Targ Mitzvot, the 613 commandments, you'll see that there's not a lot. Now, if you're not Joe Blow Israelite, if you're a Levite, all of a sudden, you have a whole heap and bunch of more commandments you have to worry about. Why? Because as an average Israelite, there's only so far you can go in the temple, right, or in the tabernacle. There's a, there's a place you have to stop. You can't go any further than that, closer towards the Shekinah, right, towards the Holy of Holies. A Levite can get a little closer, so they have more responsibility. They have more restriction. They have, more, they have a higher level of Kedusha. In other words, there are certain things that you can do as an average Israelite. They can't. It's against the law. It's against, it breaks the Torah. And you are not to take on their, their commandments, and their, but they have to abide by theirs. Now, if you're a son of Aaron, you get to serve even closer inside the, the sanctuary, but you also have a lot more restriction. You have a lot more that you're responsible for. You have a higher level of Kedusha. And then, of course, on to the uh, Kohen Gadol, the high priest. You, the high priest gets to go up in the chamber, 
once a year, right? I mean, this he I, yikes. I mean, he gets to be he gets to be surrounded by the cloud of Hashem's presence once a year. Phew, holy smokes, no pun intended. That's heavy. I mean, that is massively heavy. And we don't understand, you know, we have the some have the idea, you know, that well, I'll you know I'll boldly saunter into the you know the throne room of God. Um, let's take a let's just think about Isaiah again, right? Isaiah has this vision where he's in the in the temple and and in the throne room, and he is freaking out. He is scared to death. I don't deserve. I'm not supposed to be here. Why? Because Isaiah's a prophet. He's an Israelite. He's not a Levite. He's not. He's not supposed to be where he is in this vision. And so what happens whenever someone violates those boundaries and crosses into a level, into a place where they're not allowed, the, the consequence is death, that you die. And so Isaiah knows that's where he, like, I'm supposed to be dead. And so he, in a sense, he, in the vision, he does die. Part of him dies as the coals touch his lips. The part that is not um, adequately appropriate that has not been sanctified his mouth his unclean lips he calls them and that part the cold touches his lips and that part is purified and gives him some sort of access to where he's supposed to be it keeps him it covers him to be where he's supposed to be i know this is is technical but this this idea that we have access but access requires kedusha it's great that god is going to be with us that there's going to be emmanuel that's fantastic I mean that is that is the hope of of every human being, uh, you know that that's alive that that God size whole that that God would be with us. That's great, but in order for God to be with you, there's some things that you have to that you have to do. God said to build to Moses, have them build me a sanctuary, and um, make it exactly like I showed you. My home, my dwelling place, we talked about how, well, in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, I don't like the term Old Testament, but that's, you know, I know that's common. In the Old Testament, I'll use it pejoratively, you know, um, in, in the Old Testament, God lived in a building, but now in the New Testament, God lives in our hearts. Well, that's just false. Um, in, in the Hebrew scriptures, God's intent always was to live in the heart of man, always, that's what the prophets railed against. You're bringing Isaiah himself. You're bringing these, stop bringing these sacrifices. I don't want your rivers of blood and your, I don't want all that nonsense. I want your heart, right? It's not. And so this, the, God said, make my house exactly like I, I told you to. And then of course we know all of the, you know, read the book of Vayikra, read Leviticus. It's the handbook for the priest. Those that worked in the presence of God, closest to the presence of God. And I'm going to tell you what, we have treated the presence of God so lackadaisically and so we've mistreated him and we've disrespected him so much because we don't understand this idea that, yes, God once dwelt in a sanctuary where men had access, but there was also a level and a a, a structure that you didn't go near him or closer to him unless you had certain requirements met, a certain kedusha, holiness to Hashem. And that has not changed, ladies and gentlemen. That has not changed. Yes, God may live in your heart. God may be with us. He may be Emmanuel. 
But maybe, maybe the reason why some of our lives are not where we want them to be is not because of God and not because of, uh, of, of other things, but maybe it's because our personal kedusha towards him, our worship towards him, our, our thoughts, our meditations, our focus, our fidelity towards him is not where it should be. And we want a closeness to God that by his very nature and the principles he set forth in his Torah, we can never attain. Now, what I'm not saying is that if you're if you're just if you're some some guy from Oklahoma or some you know some lady from South Florida or whatever, and you're you know you're not a Levite that you can't get close to God. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that I believe that today we as they as they did in the Hebrew Scriptures, I believe an Israelite farmer that was not a Levite or a priest or anything out rowing you know his crop and and doing his thing shearing his sheep or whatever, could be as close to Hashem as the Kohen Gadol could. And that's not Joe talking. That's, that's rabbinic. That's, that's an idea the rabbis have known for a long time. That someone, you know, making a chair or, or, or beating out a mirror or polishing a mirror or whatever could be as close to Hashem where they were as the Kohen Gadol could, could be on the day of Yom Kippur. Because it's, it's not about, it's not only about that. It's about what you were willing to, personally, your personal kadusha towards Hashem. You want that access, that's fine. And, and we've all known people, I hope you've known people, that it seems like they hear from God every minute of the day. It seems like there's this open channel between them and Hashem. I've known people like that. And you know, you know what I credit to their being able to hear from Hashem and have that closeness? These people pray. They pray. They spend dedicated hours of day in time, in prayer. And you know what the truth of the matter is? I'm not willing to do that. I want that access. I want that access, but I don't have the level of Kedusha that allows it. So what I'm not saying is that, well, if your last name is not Kohen, then you can never be close to God. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that you can be as as close to Hashem as you desire, but God is going to require something of you. He's going to require that, that, that crucifixion of the flesh or the parts that don't deserve to be there. And until we get that stuff cleaned up, it's not going to work. So our attitudes, our mouths, our, our bitterness, our jealousy, our, all these things, that's a part of our personal kedusha. That the challenge with Emmanuel is that if you want him here, we better step up and we better become people that are holy. We better become people that are righteous, people that are clean, people that are kosher. And if we're not willing to do that, then we can't expect the dwelling presence. Thirdly, access, Kedusha, Kedusha is you, between you and Hashem. Third is our responsibility outside of that. So access, the challenge with Emmanuel is the access, that is a challenge, that we treat it correctly. Number two, our personal Kedusha. Number three, our responsibility. That's an outside thing. There is a a call, when you have the presence of God, when you have Emmanuel with you, when you, when you have access to the king, then you become an ambassador to, of the king. You become a partner with the king. You become a, uh, a disciple. You become a, you know, a message bringer of the king. And we have that responsibility to our world. Now, one of the biggest challenges to humanity today, to believers today, 
is that we have too much access to the world. And we have so much access to the world that we forget about the people in our home and the people next door, the people down the street, the people we go to, to that we fellowship with on Shabbat and we go to church with, whatever. We forget about our little town and our little neighborhood and our little community and our state. There are awful things that are happening across the globe. And we, we, we should hurt for those things. And, and, but you know what? A hundred years ago, 150 years ago, People in South Louisiana, they didn't know about mass murder in New York City, maybe, until weeks later. They certainly may not have known about stuff in genocide in Africa and, and how the Chinese were mistreating people and all. They just didn't know that. They didn't have that. That didn't take up space in their compassion, in their heart, in their mind. What they had room for was life that they were living, what they could see right in front of them. And I'm all about changing the world. And I'm all about affecting, uh, you know, righteousness and, and undoing injustice and, and all these things. I'm all about that. But listen to me, ladies and gentlemen. Sometimes we look so far away and we want to fix the world when we don't fix our own homes, our own marriages, our own children, our own communities, our own towns. We want to change the world, but we won't start right where we are. And that's a responsibility. If Emmanuel is true, the challenge to us is that we need to act like it. We need to act like ambassadors. We need to be, not act like, be, truly be ambassadors and messengers for the kingdom of light. And that message is one of hope and joy and security and identity and all of those things. And our responsibility should be a challenge to us. So I want you to be challenged with how much you access Hashem. How deep, how, how much are you willing to pour in? What is your personal Kedusha like? Are there areas that you need to clean up? And thirdly, what are you doing for the kingdom? So I hope this challenge with Emmanuel again is something that you think about for the upcoming months. I love you all so very, very much. Be encouraged, be strengthened, and until we meet again, Shalom, Shalom. Shalom.